Thanks be to God for that scripture, and thanks be to God for you. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm Hannah. I'm the pastor here, and I'm so, so glad that each and every one of you is here. And um, we're about to talk about hope. Uh, this whole month has been living boldly. What does it mean to live boldly? We've talked about giving boldly. We've talked about thanking boldly, hoping boldly, praying boldly. Um, and we're going to talk about hope because it's interesting and it's good and it has something to do with Jesus. Um, <clears throat> but before that, I just wanted to say that uh, this week and the last couple of weeks especially, there's been a lot of public um, stories and revelations and consideration of sexual harassment, assault, and abuse. And um, it has felt like a sort of tenuous miracle to see people being held accountable for the first time for that. But it also means that um, there are many of us who have experienced sexual harassment, assault, and abuse. And this can be a triggering and a challenging time, hearing those stories over and over again. And I just want to say um, that if that's you, uh, there's nothing that you or anyone could have done to prevent sexual violence from happening to you. It is never the fault of the person to whom it happens. Um, if you are not in a place to share what has happened to you, that is fine. <laughs> Continue to survive. Be who you are. If you want to share, we want to be a place that is safe for you to share. We will believe you. We will support you. We know. Um, and this is something that is true of the church and something that we need to say as the church because so many people have experienced their sexual harassment or abuse within the church. <laughs> so I think it's really important to say that. But also, um, every room you walk into this week, if you aren't a survivor, um, every room you walk into has one. <laughs> every place you go, every workplace, every school. Um, and choose your words and choose your actions believing that and knowing that, you know, um, that everywhere has a has people who have experienced sexual harassment, assault, or abuse, um, and that that's the world that we live in, and we want to create a world where people can be honest about that and where maybe there will be fewer of us in the future. Um, and that applies people of all ages and all genders. Um, women are particularly at risk for this form of violence, but uh, men are particularly at risk for never, ever being able to share it. Um, and non-binary people are at risk too. And I just want to uh, say, if you want to share your story, we're here. We know that there are a lot of us. It's not your fault. We love you. And I think if there's one thing that I have taken away that is hopeful about all of these stories, it's remembering the reality that um, these pains are never the fullness of who we are, right? That there are so many of us who experience sexual violence, harassment, assault, or abuse, and we continue to be other things too, to have other gifts, to have other interests, to be full human beings. Um, and I hope that uh, if it's been hard for you to hear all of these stories, that is one of your takeaways, that um, there might be someone in every room that you're in, but also that they are so much more than the worst thing that they've ever experienced. And there's a lot more to know about them and to honor about them too, as well as this particular pain. So let's be in prayer for that and also for one another, if you'll pray with me. <clears throat> God of power and might, God of confusion, God of mystery, God of grace, God of mercy, God who is with us in our places of deepest pain, God who we see in our challenges, 
as well as in our hope for the world. Meet us here this morning. Meet us here this day. Be in us. Be in our voices. Be in our hearts. Be in our bodies. Transform us. Help us. Wipe our tears. Hold our joys. And help us to be you to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a, <coughs> there's a reason that this story, um, the story of a man who was blind and is healed by Jesus, takes place in Jericho. So some of you uh, probably know what Jericho is from a song you may have sung when you were a child. If you went to Sunday school, Joshua fought the battle of. Um, but Jericho is famous because the Israelites in the book of Joshua go to Jericho to take it over. And the way that they take over Jericho, which has as many ancient cities did, walls around it, bricks surrounding it, um, gates between it and the world of protection. Um, they march around that city. They march around that city with words and with instruments and they shout aloud. They make a great noise and a loud noise and an extraordinary noise. And it is that noise that takes the walls down. It is that shouting that takes the walls down. And one of the first lessons that we learn about hope from this story about faith from this story is that what hope is most in most of our lives, in most of the times, uh, is persistence, is just keeping at it. This story comes right after the story of the persistent widow who had had an injustice done against her by an impressive system and fought that by going back to the judge who had done her wrong so often, he got annoyed and finally gave in and gave her the judgment that she needed, right? Her persistence was her hope was that, that things could be better. And I see in this man too, he wants something from Jesus. He wants a contact with Jesus. He wants to know the son of David. He wants some sort of relationships. It turns out a request. And the first time that he asks, son of David, have mercy on me, the people around him try to shut him up, right? Like, I, the motivation is unclear, but I would guess that for at least some of them, it was like, oh, you're embarrassing us, right? Stop being so loud. Stop being so annoying. Stop yelling at him. He's here to march, not to talk to you. Um, he's too fancy. Or for some of them, it might be um, people with disabilities, people um, who uh, were physically out of the average were marginalized in, in this time as they are in our time as well. And uh, maybe they thought that he didn't have a right to ask for Jesus' personal attention. You know, Maybe uh, some of them wanted Jesus' personal attention for their own and they thought that this was a scarcity model and any attention that this guy got, they wouldn't get. Who knows why they're yelling at him, but they are telling him to shut up, <laughs> right? They're telling him to be quiet. And I love what it says in the scripture is not just that he continues to call on Jesus, but that he specifically after being told to shut up, shouts even more loudly. <laughs> he chooses, right? I'm going to elevate my volume. No, you lose. I'm going to shout even more loudly. I want Jesus. You're telling me not to. Tough luck. I'm shouting even more loudly. I have hope. I have persistence. I want this guy. That's one of the first things I learned about hope. The second one is, and I think this is really important, the way in which um, Jesus asks the man what he wants, does not assume, asks the man what he wants. There's an old story that uh, the different blind men from the four different versions of this story and the Gospels are the beginning of denominationalism um, because there's a story that they, they all met one day uh, after Jesus had ascended into heaven and they're all talking about this 
what seems to be a shared experience of having had an intimate contact with Jesus in which they experienced a form of healing that they wanted, but they all experience it different ways. This is a story that shows up in each of the Gospels, and some things about it are the same, but some things about it are different. So in some versions of the story, there's two people. In some versions of the story, there's one. In some versions of the story, Jesus just touches them. In other versions of the story, he says, I don't even need to touch you. You have such faith. In other versions of the story, he wipes mud and spit together and puts the mud and spit on the eyes. And so there's a story that all the men are together, and they're and at first they're like, oh yeah, isn't it amazing? Like, wasn't Jesus awesome? Wasn't that experience incredible? And then one of them is like, well, yeah, but you need mud to really be close to Jesus, right? You need mud to, to heal. And one of them is like, no, that's the opposite. If you touch, that's a sign of lack of faith. What you need is faith to heal. And they all go off and start their own communities and you know, do exactly what humans do, which is always pay attention to the least useful part of the story and make it the biggest deal in the world. Um, but one thing that is common to all of the versions, and especially in the synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that they all have Jesus asking what do you want? And this is really important for those of us who are Christians who uh, live with disabilities, or more importantly, who live with what society has made to be disabilities, right? Because all of us vary <laughs> in our physical bodies, in our mental um, capacities. There's a lot of human variation. And society is set up for some of our variation to live pretty easily. And society is set up to make some of our variation harder to live with. And so part of our variation in any generation has been set aside as too different, more different, harder to live. And in this time, blindness was one of those things. And in our time, blindness was one of those things. And for many Christians with disabilities, some of these stories, these stories of healing have been stones on the road to a productive faith because so many people with disabilities experience their disability sometimes to be something that causes suffering and pain, but also something that is constitutive of identity, <laughs> something that made me who I am, something that gifted me in ways that others are not gifted, that has formed me in ways that others are not formed. And the idea that what Jesus' perfection is is to take away something that made us who we are, um, to take away something that we have experienced as a part of us, uh, is a dangerous idea. And so I think it's really important that Jesus doesn't assume that what they want is not to be blind anymore, right? He doesn't assume that that's a part of what the kingdom is. He doesn't assume that that's a part of what being a faithful person is. He asks them, what do you want? <laughs> What's on your mind? Um, and it is this man or these men, depending on the story, who they decide, um, perhaps because it's just too hard in their society, perhaps because they've taken in the lesson of their peers, perhaps because it's what they want and they're allowed to want that, to be, uh, to, to be able to see. That's what they ask for. It's not what everybody would ask for. <laughs> there are blind men who would ask for a warm and fuzzy coat you know, for the cold winter nights. Or there are blind men who would ask for a plot of land that they could garden their whole life because that's their passion. Or there are blind men who might ask for a house for the orphans of their city because that's why they find their heart. But Jesus asks us what we want, <laughs> which says something else to me about hope, which is that um, Jesus is paying attention to us, to who we are, to what we're up to, to whether we are people who will respond better to mud and spit or to uh, no touch because our faith is so great. And Jesus is paying attention to what we hope for. Jesus is paying attention to the visions of the world that we write and that we draw and that we put out. Um, and Jesus isn't limited by them, but Jesus is informed by them. 
what we hope for matters. It shapes us and it shapes our world. What we think of as deserving of hope matters. What we shape for and what we think. Um, so we're gonna talk about that a little bit at the end about this man and what has happened to him with Jesus. But first, uh, I wanna go a little bit into hope. Because I think hope is actually, as much as we talk about it as many political campaigns and TV shows and other pieces of cultural ephemera have been shaped around the idea of hope, it's actually pretty hard to get your head around, to get your hands around, to figure out what this thing is, this hope. Um, and particularly in an American context, uh, we tend to get it mixed up with optimism. Um, we tend to confuse hope for optimism, which is uh, a sort of sense that things are gonna be fine, right? Optimism is like a sense that things are gonna be good. Uh, I'm not saying optimism is bad. I was called Pollyanna in middle school. Like, that, like it is a particular thing of mine to be optimistic. Um, but optimism is not as faithful as hope. It's not as important as hope. And it's not the same as hope. Uh, here's something that happens to me a lot as a person who is a sort of like silver linings person, right? Like I, oh, it's going to be okay. It'll be all right. Um, someone I'm really close to, a good friend, someone I love, my spouse, will be going through a hard time. And this is a hard lesson that I've had to learn over like a decade. Um, and what I think will be helpful, because it's helpful to me when my life sucks, is to immediately go, well, maybe this good thing will come out of it. Or maybe it'll all turn out okay. And actually how the people around me experience that is as a total um, uh, like ignoring of and sliding over of their pain <laughs> and of what is really happening to them. Optimism hasn't actually dealt with the problem. It just assumes that things will get better. It hasn't actually honored the difficulty. It just assumes that things will be okay. Um, so optimism's not wrong, but it's not hope, which is looking at things in the face understanding what they are to be, honoring them, seeing them, and still sustaining some sense that God's promises are true. That there is another layer to the experience that is also true. It's not that the bad thing isn't true, it's that other things are true too, right? Uh, I think I said this a few weeks ago, but one of my seminary professors, I still think about this, <laughs> just said, American Christianity is Christianity that wants to forget Holy Saturday, right? It's optimism, Jesus. We want to be watching the crucifixion on Friday, and it freaks us out so much, we just immediately go, la, 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 la. You come back to life. You come out of a cave. That's what happens next. La, 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 la. Uh, but that's not what happens. There's a whole 24 hours. We're just like, he's dead. <laughs> and things feel hopeless, and things feel terrible. And hope is living in those kinds of days and seeing them for what they are and experiencing them for what they are and continuing to believe that Easter Sundays are possible, even if we're not in the midst of them or we're not pretending that they're already here. But that's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to do. It's really hard to hold. It's really hard to sustain. Um, and I am generally an extremely prosaic person. I'm very like literal. I like shouting. I like bright colors. Subtlety is not my gift. Um, so I have not tended to be a person who reads a lot or experiences a lot of poetry, but I think with things like hope, with these larger ideas, with these, um, with these gifts, uh, poetry can be helpful. It can be a way for, to lead us through um, some of the things that are hard to get our hands around. So I looked up some poetry having to do with, with hope, and it helped me to access a part of it that I don't usually access. I want to share that poetry with you. So here's our first poem. Um, 
Carrion Comfort by Gerard Manley Hopkins. For those who don't know Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, Christian poet of a few centuries ago, so that's why his language feels a little different. Um, very, very gifted. I read a lot of his poetry for sort of discipleship and faith reasons. And this whole thing is good, but the, the first couple of lines especially I found really revealing and helpful about hope. Not, I'll not carry in comfort despair, not feast on thee. Not untwist slack they may be, these last strands of man, in me or most weary cry, I can no more. I can, can something, hope, wish day come, not choose not to be. Not choose not to be. What helped me about this um, was not actually telling me what hope was, but by telling me about why we get tempted out of it so often. This to me is a poem about why despair is attractive. <laughs> why despair is something that sometimes feels like a direction we want to go <laughs> instead of a direction we want to avoid. That there is some comfort to be found in saying, I give up. It all sucks. It's all over. There is some comfort in that because in that, in that despair, um, Nothing more is asked of us. Nothing more is required. There are no further steps. And so there is, it helped me to understand why sometimes, as, as, as hard as it is to have despair, there is an attractiveness that I find in it. But that attractiveness will not sustain me. And it will not sustain you, and it will not sustain anyone. It is carrion comfort. Carrion is the word, right, for um, dead things that vultures go after. <laughs> It's a cold comfort, a dead comfort that has nothing alive in it. It feels satisfying to dwell in despair for a little bit sometimes, but it will not carry us through. It will not carry us through to anything else. And that's an important reminder to me. And that hope is not some glorious total conviction of all things are wonderful and work towards the good. For Hopkins, hope really is not choosing not to be. It is something, not nothing. It is anything, anything we can find. Not the biggest thing, the greatest thing, the most profound thing. Anything that is rather than is not. That puts us into the world rather than allowing us to X ourselves out by saying, despair, I don't matter and nothing does. Something is better than nothing. The next one is um, Lucille Clifton, Won't You Celebrate With Me, which is just an extraordinary one that I, this always just teaches me a lot about who God is when there are people in the world who can take, you know, <clears throat> this must be 40 words and arrange them in such a way that they do this to my heart and to my soul, which is not at all how my brain works and not at all how my heart works, but God has made people who can do that. That's amazing. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Um, and so Lucille Clifton, uh, look up her whole body of work, but this one's great. Um, Won't you celebrate with me? What I have shaped into a kind of life, I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up. Here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. 
It's extraordinary. <laughs> and, and it's bracing, right? This is not a childish hope. This is not a hope of rainbows and birds, so it's all okay. <laughs> uh, she has faced the darkness of a universe, of a world, of an oppressive system that is trying to kill her, that tries to eliminate her experience, that tries to call her nothing, not embracing the nothing, but tries to make her nothing, and has continued to survive. And finds in that not just a victory, like a warlike victory, right? I survived, I came through, but a reason to celebrate, a reason to throw a party, a reason to have joy, that in her survival, she finds a kind of hope that whatever kind of life she has fashioned feels half done, it feels like clay, it doesn't feel full, but she has fashioned it. She has taken it and made a life out of resources that felt like they could never give life and never sustain it. This to me is hope. This is what the substance of hope looks like. When we are truthful, when we are realistic, about how hard things can be, and yet we sustain a sense of joy, a sense of life in the midst of that pain, that life continues, that life amazingly, in all circumstances, beyond all things, makes room for itself, forces room for itself. Life will make more. We'll make more justice, we'll make more survival, we'll make more joy. And I find hope in that. I find hope in this poem, I find hope in its existence, I find hope in its attitude. And I find challenge as well. But if I didn't find the challenge, it wouldn't be hope. It would just be a nice day. So the next one. <clears throat> hope is the thing with feathers. This one I just sort of felt like I had to put up there because everyone had heard it in school, and so I wanted you to, uh, to, so hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. Um, it's a beautiful image that has stuck in a lot of our heads, but what I think is really interesting about this one is the end. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest, <laughs> chillest land had quite a different evocation then than it would, does now. <laughs> it's not like the land of bros, right? Um, I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. This, I think, is such an interesting idea of what hope is, of a bird that sings and floats outside of ourselves. And that part of it feels really resonant with me, that there is something about when I feel hope and sustenance, um, that it doesn't come from inside me, it comes from somewhere else. It, that feels true to me, that there's a bigger thing that um, impacts us, a, a part of just knowledge of God and God's reality that's out there that becomes a part of us. But it has not been true, at least to my experience, and maybe because I'm not good enough at hope yet, <laughs> maybe I have work to do, um, that hope asks nothing of us. For me to be hopeful asks a lot of me. <laughs> it takes a lot out of me. It takes um, honesty and listening to others and solidarity and friendship and energy. It takes energy and time to be hopeful. It takes intention to be hopeful. It takes trying to be hopeful. Um, and so I have always found it worth it to sustain that hope. But I have not found what Emily found, which is this uh, presence of hope that comes without trying. 
Maybe I will if I try hard enough, if I make a habit out of it. Maybe it will one day become like this, a bird that sings the song of my soul without my having to teach it the words. I don't know. So next one, St. Francis and the Sow. Um, this one I would commend to you. So it's St. Francis who loved the animals, right? St. Francis. Um, what's beautiful about this one is that uh, it is convicted that what it means to be hopeful is to be hopeful about who God created us to be in the, the essence of ourselves, not to become something else. So it talks about St. Francis touching a sow, a mother pig with piglets suckling, and by touching the sow, not teaching the sow to become something that can fly, not teaching the sow to become uh, a perfect saint, but teaching the sow to become the most sow that it can be, to feel all of its soundness. Um, and I think that's what we're being invited to, too, is not to become something different, but become the most of what God has created us to be. But there are gifts in us. And the beginning of it goes, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. And I think this is... Um, a truth we have to remember that all of us are buds, that the world is a bud. That doesn't mean that flowers aren't real. Um, it means that there is something more waiting to be grown out of us. There's a reason that Jesus, almost any time he talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, um, uses metaphors because it's so hard to describe literally. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is like yeast. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. These are all things that start small with lots of potential, but grow much greater later. And that process takes time. You don't wake up one day and go from an acorn to an oak. <laughs> you are grown. And it also teaches us a part of what our job is to one another, that we are to reteach one another our loveliness. Who this week have you taught about how lovely they are? Who this week have you reminded of how extraordinary you find them to be, of the beauty that is them, that has been them, that will be them, of all of the themness that is a gift to you because they can do things and are things that are different from you, and that is a gift from God, and you want to touch them and hold them and reteach them their loveliness. We are buds, but so is the world. Um, it's incomplete. And to say that we see honestly the things that are going wrong and yet sustain a vision for the future is not to say that this thing is going to end and then a new thing's going to come that's good. It's going to say there are things now that are beautiful and extraordinary and they have yet to bloom. And we choose to believe. <laughs> we choose to believe that blooming is possible. Now this is the last one. A Map to the Next World by Joy Harjo for Desiree Kira Chi. And this is super, super long. So I, if you like it, definitely look it up. But we're not going to read it all right now. Um, but the, the vision is one that I find really helpful when I think about the role of the kingdom in our lives and the role of hope in our lives, which is, in the last days of the fourth world, I wished to make a map for those who would climb through the hole in the sky. My only tools were the desires of humans as they emerged from the killing fields, from the bedrooms and the kitchens. For the soul is a wanderer with many hands and feet. The map must be of sand and can't be read by ordinary light. It must carry fire to the next tribal town for renewal of spirit. 
In the legend are instructions on the language of the land, how it was we forgot to acknowledge the gift, as if we were not in it or of it. That how she thinks of the world ending and moving to the next world is not this distinct moment of cleavage, of separation, but of a movement towards something greater that is formed by, that is made of, the stuff of now. The stuff of now that is good that we experience every day, the stuff of now that is good that we have forgotten long ago, the land and the sand and the sun and the sea and one another, that there is a map to the next world, there is a map to God's kingdom written on our hearts and on our souls and in our bodies, and we have to help each other remember it. And that's what hope is. Hope is neither casually assuming that things are gonna be okay in the face of a world that is full of oppression and destruction and pain and suffering, nor is it placing all of our hope far in the future and saying, this place is depraved and awful, but one day, one day, a better thing will come. It is saying there is pain and there is suffering and destruction and there are also the seeds and the buds of something extraordinary and they are a part of us. They are part of us here and now. God has made good things here and now. God has given us a map to a greater world here and now. We can be a part of that mustard and that yeast here and now. And we can trust what hope is, is believing that those things will bloom, that the petals will come, that there is a sustaining vision and joy of the world that we can hold on to as a rope when everything else feels like it's falling apart. It's real hope. That brings me out of poetry and into art. This vision, this visual might not move you as much as it moves me, but I just love this. I think about it all the time whenever I think about what I'm trying to, like what discipleship is for me basically, for me personally and as a community, is that you look at the egg and you paint the bird, <laughs> right? You, you see what is, you see that, that it is not yet, and you trust that some of it is already true. <laughs> that both things are true at the same time, that we are eggs and we are birds, that we are the baby version and we are the whole enchilada already, and that that doesn't make a lot of sense, but that God is doing it. And that in everything we see, there is the potential for so much more and the potential for greater. And that's where, as much as I learn a lot from this story of Jesus and this man about healing, about identity, about consent, about the fact that Jesus asks him about persistence because he keeps on yelling and I want to be a person who yells out hope too, who yells out hope for myself and hope for the world and who continues to act and put my body on the line and put my soul on the line um, for the things that I hope for. It also teaches me how small so many of us have gotten in our expectation of what Jesus can do. How small we have gotten. When Jesus asked the man what he wanted, he said, I want to see, and I believe that he wanted it. And I believe that if I was asked the same thing, I would say something similar, right? I want to live in a house and not rent anymore, I would say, or I want to not have to worry about my kid's future and know that they're going to be okay, or I, you know, I, th those are the first things I would think of if Jesus showed up. I, I would think of those things too. But if we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that God is who God says God is, that God cares for the whole of us, not just each person. Isn't it strange that Jesus asks us what we want and we don't say, 
a world of kingdom, a world of peace, where rivers flow with righteousness and justice. A world where all can be treated as they should be treated and where all can see what they want to see and be what they want to be in you, through you, and of you. A world where not just I am safer, but where every person in Jericho can live to the fullest of who you have invited them to be. Why do we think so small? Why do we think so small about what God wants for us, about what we can ask God for, about what we can trust in and hope for and build? We think so small. We, we're living in an egg and asking for you know, the shell to be cracked when we could be envisioning birds, when we could be growing wings. And so I think it's time for us to hope more boldly to hope together, to hope in a way that listens to the experience of the other, because hope is never just about us alone. Um, there is no such thing as a heaven populated by one. There is no kingdom that is just our vision of what would be perfect. This is what is so missing about most of our pop cultural sort of expectations of what heaven looks like, right, is that the whole point of the kingdom is that it works for everybody which means that what we hope for has to involve what other people are telling us about their experience of the world. And it means that we hear that and we take it seriously and we see it for the pain that it is and we continue to hope that things can be better, that there can be joy, that there can be justice, that we can be together in ways that we never thought possible, that the yeast will become bread, that the bud will become rose, that the egg will become bird, and that until the day when it flies, until the day when it blooms, until the day when it is fully baked, it will make a difference if we act like we believe those things are possible. It will make a difference to us, it will make a difference to the people around us, it will make a difference to God, and it will make a difference of what we are willing to ask of God and what we are willing to ask of ourselves if we boldly hope about what things could be, about who we could be with Jesus' help. So I'm going to try and hope boldly, and I hope you will too. Amen? Amen.